Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. In this nugget, I have asked Adam Habib to be in conversation with me. He had recently tweeted a couple of tweets that caught my attention, and I thought that they were rather interesting. They, in some sense, are mimicking something I had written after the January the 8th statement that I had also put as a voice piece on the podcast channel as well. And essentially, the point that I'd made was it's kind of interesting listening to the president in Bloemfontein celebrating the ANC at a birthday bash, critiquing the state, but almost behaving like a political commentator or a civil society organization or an opposition party leader as if they don't actually have power. And this weird remembrance that there's a difference between party and state when it suits them. And then when it doesn't suit them, they collapse that distinction. So that's the point that I'd made a couple of weeks ago. Now, that continued when you have the ANC Youth League, you've got COSATU, the SACP, all critiquing various parts of the state. And in that context, Adam had tweeted, amongst other things, this tweet. It is striking how many opportunists, ANC Youth League, COSATU, SACP, EFF and ANC, are now complaining about load shedding, yet they are the architects of this crisis by advancing cadre deployment, non-meritocratic appointments, Zuma's appointment as president, and in general, their own lawlessness. That two other tweets, but I'll get to them a little bit later in the conversation. Adam is obviously, as you know, the director at SOAS in London, but I've invited him in his capacity as an author, a political scientist, a commentator, and an academic. Adam, thank you so much for making time for me. Well, thank you for having me. Adam, there's a there's a sort of design or conceptual part of this conversation and then an empirical part, and then we'll move on to two other themes I want to explore with you. I've always found it interesting from a political science point of view that, you know, it gets drummed into you as an undergrad that party and state should not be collapsed. But the reality is when you have one party dominance, there's a fusion. And I liked your tweet because although you weren't making a theoretical point, you were making a practical observation trenchantly, it does also underscore for me the complete and utter disingenuity of various parts of the tripartite alliance that remember that there's a difference between party and state when we all critique the state, but the rest of the time, they are happy to use the state and to fleece it. That's exactly right. So it's uh, the the ANC's approach, to be honest, and the tripartite alliance approach more generally to the state in South Africa has been a duplicitous one. Uh, to be honest, the state in all of its uh, complexity is now been overwhelmingly defined by the ANC since 1994. The, the NP's imprints on the state have been significantly eroded mm. in the last 30 years. Mm. And it is largely reflective of the agendas of the ANC or the agendas of factions of the ANC when you are speaking to the uh, manifestations of the local state. And the ANC as the ruling party hasn't been the only player determining that. Kosatu has done so in many, many ways, particularly around uh, the Labour Department, uh, a member of the economic ministries. The SACP has played a role. I would argue even the EFF in an earlier life cycle through uh, its manifestation in the ANC Youth League 
had played an important role in who became who came to power, how they what their agenda was, etc. So all of these actors who are today complaining have been complicit. And as have, many people have reminded me in, in the tweets that I sent a couple of weeks, a couple of days ago, mm. is actually the president himself was uh, the head of the war room that was meant to deal with ESCOM, that was meant to deal with SAA, that was meant to deal with the very state-owned uh, enterprises. Um, prior to his position as president. That's so right, that's Adam. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why your, your tweet is simultaneously underpinned by really unmasking their disingenuity in pretending that they're not in the driving seat of power. But of course, more literally, in an important way, your tweet is also an empirical observation that from just a factual point of view, if we ask the question, how did we get here? Who orchestrated the crises that we are living through, and we can talk about its dangers in a minute or two, but in terms of the genesis, it is the very Johnny-come-lately critics of the state that actually were there in the genesis of this crisis. That's absolutely right. And that goes for the personalities involved. It goes for the leadership of the state in its present form, Every single one of the individuals was there. Uh, I would argue in some of the earlier manifestations that created the crisis in the Becky administration, their refusal to take the early assessments in the late 1990s about South Africa's power uh, uh, being saturated by 2008 and hadn't started procuring supply, but even uh, post-2008, in the, the emergence of Jacob Zuma, the capture of state institutions, the generic corruption that emerged there, the appointment of individuals who didn't have the capacity to run uh, state institutions. And I must say, that goes on to the president. I was just watching the debate between uh, Gwedeman Tash on his role and responsibilities as Minister of Energy. Uh, and it shows how little understanding of, he has of his role and how he's refusing to take any level of accountability for the crisis uh, of power that we have in this country. I want to move on to a next theme. You and I spoke about it before we started this recording. And I think it would be really awesome if we have a longer conversation on this theme, but it is important at this juncture in, our, in, our, in today's little nugget. When you have so much discontent in your society, deep disappointment, anger in the democratic edifice, whether you're black or white, a suburbanite, peri-urban area, rural area, another analyst today that I had lunch with said, in a wry laughing manner, because it's a serious issue, the one thing about the rolling blackouts is that it might be the one thing that is again which normally happens with sporting events, galvanize South Africans across their differences. But it also means that you have anger that politicians can also prey on, including the ones responsible for the crisis. Now, you're a scholar. You have to observe what goes on in the rest of the global south, also now in the global north, including democracies like the USA. What are the dangers to guard against when you have so much anger, disappointment, in your populace, and that can potence uh, 
a future of all sorts of fascistic politics and populism that isn't necessarily better than the status quo. So one of the things that uh, concerns me a lot is that when you have the kinds of deep anger in the society that we have today, and when that anger is a result of a society that is heavily polarized politically, and that polarization is itself a product of deep, deep structural inequalities, you could land up in a situation where people just vote for any alternative to what they have at this moment. And the three or four uh, recent case studies of that are uh, India, in which Modi came to power, uh, Brazil, in which Bolsonaro came to power, and uh, the United States, in which Trump came to power. Mm. And in all, in all three cases, what you had is a more conservative authoritarian project Yes. Although one must make the big difference that in India, that the authoritarian product has achieved growth rates of 6-7%, mm. which didn't happen in the other context. But outside that, all three were largely populist, right-wing populist, and divided society in quite severe ways. Uh, uh, and that's my fear, that we have a similar level of anger, anger the similar level of structural elements and divisions in the society, and if you like, a deficit of democratic leadership. And all three are a toxic, explosive mix that we should be very, very careful of. If you look at activities in the country, even if you don't look at it in terms of hard data, but thematically what comes up, in terms of listening in on the conversation, social media, the mainstream media, and you combine that with some of the indices around criminality, different kinds of criminality that have now become even more prominent than before, like children being kidnapped, for example, South Africa being an easy place for the illicit flows of money through our borders. Some of that are characteristics of states that are in political theoretic terms, gangster states even, like certain parts of um, Central America, South America. And I wonder, from a rigorous political science point of view, what you make of where we are at at this moment in terms of our democracy? How many red flags, even in general, in terms of the general propensity to go up when there's backsliding do you see happening in the country? And although the Guptas are gone, how much of the continuities with the predation on the state morphing into a gangster state, if you look at the kinds of criminality that we don't speak about popularly on Twitter or Facebook, but it is there, um, including, like I've said, for example, you know, organized crime that doesn't always get the level of attention that it should, even in the mainstream media. How would you characterize South Africa's democracy, because the exceptionalism narrative is one that we continue to be addicted to. Yeah, so I think that if there was ever, and I was as partly guilty about the exceptionalist narrative as most other people, uh, I think I've been rather, frankly, rudely awakened. I think 
that South Africa is in its most dangerous position definitely since 1994. But frankly, from the perspective of the gangster state that you identify, I think uh, I would argue that we could go back in the last hundred years. Uh, I think we are, uh, we were a failing state. What is the distinction in many ways between a failing state, a failed state, and a gangster state? Mm. A failed state is the collapse of state structures and no governance, no administration, citizens just mark a plan and survive. Mm. Uh, a gangster state is not simply a failed state, but it is the organized structure of gangs that rule in the vacuum of the failed state. Mm. And that's the big difference. Mm. I think South Africa, if you ask me, a couple of year, months ago, I would have said is moving towards a failed state. But now I'm increasingly of the view it's not only collapsing as a state, but there's a great likelihood it could become the gangster state. Because in that vacuum, you will have a whole series of organized syndicates that effectively carve exactly. governance for their own uh, for their own agendas. Absolutely. A yeah. place of operations for global mm. global illicit trade. And I think that that's a real danger. Mm. And I don't think our police service has the capacity to manage it, the acumen to manage it. I think we've denuded it of capacity and most other uh, aid structures of the state have been denuded of capacity. I think this is just we didn't take uh, a meritocratic appointment seriously. Now, you know, I'm I agree with most people that one's going to be careful about the use of meritocracy because meritocracy can be racially coded, but you can't just ignore merit as a criteria. What you need to do is to de-racialize it. You don't ignore it. And I think large parts of the state have effectively ignored the issue of merit. It became a patronage network where you distribute resources, et cetera. I've got a last question, but I, I just want to parenthetically ask you whether you do think we've funded, and I don't know, I, I suppose I do agree with you, but let me ask it as a, as a pressure testing question aloud, maybe for the both of us. Do we fundamentally have a absence of meritocratic appointments as the key, as the key problem with the quality of our bureaucracy and the state in general? Or is it really an ethics problem? In other words, are there a lot of capable people who are simply dishonest, not constitutionally minded and law abiding? Because that's, that's very different from lacking capability. Because the other ambiguity, and I know your politics, so I know this is not what you were implying, is that for some of us, when we hear, we need a meritocratic system, what we often hear there is, you know, the comrades, which is code for blacks, don't have the technical ability to run an ESCOM. But I think we've got more of a values problem than we do a capability problem in many of the, the potential appointees, but maybe it's both. So I think we've got both. I think that there, there's a large layer of people in the state who just don't have the technical skills. So I think in finance departments, in many, many local governments, they just do not have the technical ability. Mm. But what that does is it allows 
a layer of fairly astute, uh, capable people to then utilize the public mm. apparatus for their own personal gain. Mm. And that's where I think that the real danger is. I, in my group of tweets, was very conscious of this. So what my answer to this was, I was fairly clear. I said very clearly that I do think young people, I made the argument about young people and I said, there's this argument in the ANC, we just need a new generation of ANC people and the problem will be resolved. And I questioned that because I think young people from within the ANC are as compromised in many ways as, as the older generation are. But I did say that I think younger people outside the party structure, I think South Africa has many capable people. Black, now, that was going to be my last question to you. Can I, let me read out the tweets for completion's sake, if anyone missed it who's listening to the podcast. And this is the last one we're going to explore, this area for the, for the remaining three or four minutes. Adam tweeted, could a new generation lead us out of this mess? Yes, but they have to come from outside the parties. The future lies not in the activists and politicians, but in ordinary people who are just surviving, students who are not in the parties, and SRCs and professionals, who have shunned the state. SA's future is dependent on bringing these ordinary people, students and professionals, those who are not politically tainted by the grubby parties to power in the state and in public institutions. Without this transition in leadership, we are doomed as a country. I wanna ask you a twin set of questions and then close it out with a full, full answer. I wanna know what you mean by that practically. And I want to preemptively um, ask you the skeptical response. Is it possible for decent people who care about the country and who are technically competent and ethically minded with Batubela principles inscribed on their hearts to really be able to do what the current lot are not doing if they are not registered as political parties, form political parties, get into the sociology and praxis of political parties and contest for political power in the way in which democracies function for better or worse? So let me answer this in two places and it does highlight the dilemma of South Africa's political system. So I think the first part of this is I need both in my previous position at BITS, but just in my general interaction, very, very capable people, students, professionals, etc. Often many of them say, we can't go into the state. We, we subject it to all kinds of pressures. I'm going to go into the private sector. I'm going to run my own company. And they're doing some amazing things. Hmm. There's some incredible innovations that they're looking at, etc. And so uh, the fact that you can take somebody like uh, India Suleiman, who runs one of our major companies globally, he's efficient. He runs it. He delivers it. He puts well, he, he does dig balls in hospitals, yes. he delivers electricity, water, etc. in mm. public institutions. Mm. These are, there are millions of these kinds of people. And yet they are not at the heart of the state mm. when they should be, because they could attend to our problems in fairly practical, radical and progressive ways. Sure. The problem is, how do you get them back there? And the problem with the South Africa's political system is it's so structured on the party system and it's so structured by the president being elected through mm. parliament and through the party system mm. that it prevents 
a, a dramatic disruption in the democratic era. Mm. So if you took in a number of democracies in presidential systems, take France and how Macron came to power, whether you agree with him or not, what is Macron then appeals to the populace across the parties and say, the parties I don't trust, I'm standing for election and coalesce a political cohort around him. You can do that in presidential systems. You are unable to do it in the political structures of the South African parliament. And that's the dilemma we structured it. So even if five or 10 people emerged and they were capable of winning the public support, the party system will close them down. And that's the dilemma we're in. And for me, that's the tragedy of the moment we're in. I think we could find two, three, four people that could appeal across the parties. But the yeah, of it yeah. Is- now I agree with you. And I think that's where efforts being made by, you know, you think of an outfit like Ravonia Circle, they have to deal with that kind of dilemma. Do we formalize ourselves beyond a community-based think tank that does practical work that is, in terms of democratization, important? How do we evolve from that to capturing power away from the ANC? Because unless you have your hands on the levers of power, collecting taxes, dispersing them, creating laws, and acting policy, and also your hands on the levers of legitimate state security apparatus, those are the best ways to try and make a fundamental difference in achieving a more just South Africa. And that requires you to be in the business of politics. But what I want to thank you for is the tweets, the agitation to call out those who are hypocritical in the tripartite alliance. I agree with you. And I will interview some of them on the podcast as a response to this conversation between us. And I think as South Africans, we've got to begin the business of reimagining South Africa and not be scared to think about a South Africa in which the ANC is not ubiquitous. Thank you for having me.